You are listening to The Christian Commute, a commute-length podcast about Christian apologetics, theology, and other matters of Christian interest. Here is your host, Seth Dunn. It is Thursday, January 4th. This is The Christian Commute. I am your host, Seth Dunn, and here we go to basketball practice. The season is starting once again, and I'm feeling, this may be good for you people, by the way, I'm feeling sort of directionless because I'm not signed up to, to coach soccer in the, in the spring, and I'm the assistant coach of the basketball team right now, and I mean, me, me and the other guy are pretty serious, but basketball season will be over in January. And then I will have nothing to coach. I'll still have to take my kids to various practices, but I will have nothing to plan out, no people to recruit. Like, guys, you really don't have to know, when, you, especially for youth sports, and I'll say this for college sports too, you don't have to be the greatest play caller or strategy person if you have all the best players. That's why Alabama always wins. I mean, they... They have the best players. So I usually recruit the best players. So I spend a lot of my time recruiting people, making lineups, making strategies. I don't have anything to do. None of that. So I feel like there may be a bit of a blogging and podcasting renaissance coming up for me in spring. Because, I mean, there's stuff popping up on the internet, and usually I'm like, I ain't got time for that. Ain't got time for that. I ain't got time for that. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time for that. And I'm like, I'll let Dustin handle that one. And there's stuff popping up now, and I'm like, you know what? I might, I might throw up a blog article about this. I listened to two Crosspoint City Church, no, three, three Crosspoint City Church sermons yesterday, thinking I'm going to review those. And uh, the first one, it was on 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. And I remember saying to myself, this is impossible to mess up. He, this won't be anything worth reviewing. And I was right. I mean, it was a good sermon, uh, even though I don't like the guy and his whole mission and outlook of the church and their whole strategy at Crosspoint. But it was, it was really nothing to critique or mu- not much to critique there. There was a little bit. So, but I'm, for, for completion's sake, I'm going to review that one. And then the next two were just terrible, especially the next one. So I'm, I'm just encouraged to get back into doing sermon reviews and, and doing uh, blog articles. I think I'm going to read a Priscilla Shower book so I can be real specific when I need to tell people how terrible she is. Oh, if anybody has a copy of Armor of God by Priscilla Shower, send it my way. Send it my way. Oh, corrections from the last show. There's a couple of corrections to do because I guess I was out of practice. It's, it, I was misspeaking. There was a time that I said uh, the company that I own, I don't own the company where I work. I'm just a corporate goon. I was talking about franchise locations. That's not really a theological um, 
<coughs> correction. But don't think I'm some dude out here owning companies because I'm not. And the other correction is I kept saying when I was at Elevation Church, when I was at Elevation Church, I meant Expedition Church in Cartersville. And you longtime listeners, you've heard my stories about being at Expedition Church. But I, I guess I had Furtick on the brain. I said Elevation, Elevation. I swear these church planning people come around with stupid names for churches that uh, where is Elevate where, where is see I always did it again Expedition Church in Cartersville where is it what's the is it off Center Road it can't just be Center Road Church it's a Baptist Church but God forbid they call it Baptist it was Expedition and we're going to put a dune buggy <laughs> On the web, on the as a picture on the website, because we're all in this expedition together to the top of the mountain to find God. I don't know. It's just like it's one of those things where I look back and as I know the name was stupid the whole time, but I went there anyway. You know why? Because a church like that, I think, is designed for people who don't want to go to Tabernacle and First Baptist. That's why you plant a church in the Bible Belt. You're going to do things a little smaller and a little differently. Kind of like Crosspoint does on a large scale. Uh, that really doesn't appeal to me. But the pastor there was willing to invest in me and spend time with me and mentor me. And I think I very much appreciated that. And that's the reason that I went there where I otherwise would not have gravitated towards a church like that. And I think that caused me to overlook some things. So that's that. Speaking of overlooking things... Let's talk about today's show title. Paul Pressler and a hill upon which to settle. Paul Pressler and a hill upon which to settle. Right? That's the show topic, provided I don't make it to the gym too fast. i got 45 minutes to get there. I'm cutting it close. If I was the head coach, I'd have left at 5 on the dot. Like, I'm gone! But... Since I wasn't, I was like, I'm going to send this spreadsheet out before I leave. Uh, I, have a sh- I have a question in the inbox about imprecatory psalms. Imprecatory psalms. And I'll get to the Bible chapter of you when I merge on to 75. And it's a particularly slow merge day. I got a bunch of trafficy, slow-driving people in front of me. Come on. Get over! What's wrong with you? It's one particular tractor trailer who's just creeping along. Alright, now I'm caught up in this wash. Let me let me get up to speed and get in the left lane. Get by the bad drivers. We're going to finish Matthew chapter 26 today. Been in that one for months. Now, of course, we haven't had a lot of shows. We're in verses 73 through 75. And then we're going to close the book on Matthew 26. Move on to 27 and 28. We're almost done with the book of Matthew. What's the last one we did? Mark? I think we did Mark. I did Matthew. I think I did Mark before Matthew because uh, the Bible scholar people think chronologically it was written first. Uh, So that's why I think I did it before Matthew, even, even though Matthew comes first in the biblical canon, the order of the books. I think I'll do Luke next. And then we'll fi- we'll finish up the Synoptic Gospels, and then do John. And if I had to guess, 
finishing Matthew and doing Luke will probably take most of 2024, if not all of it. So I'll... Ooh, there's another one. Do I want to do Acts right after Luke? You know, I think I will. Oh, yeah, I think I'll do Acts right after Luke, because Luke, Acts, same author. That makes more sense. And then I'll probably do John after that. So, not written in stone, but that's the plan. What we should be doing through 2024 and probably 2025 on the Christian commute. I'm almost out of Bible. I'm either going to have to double up on the, or triple up on New Testament books or go to the Old Testament. We'll see. Matthew chapter twick. Matthew 26, verse 73. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So what happened? Remember, Jesus told the disciples, y'all are going to deny me. And Peter said, not me. And Jesus said, you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows. Like, Not only are you going to do it, you're going to do it fast. And once again, this was Peter not listening. Remember when Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You're the, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father above. All right, so Peter knew who the Messiah was. God had revealed it to him. And then the next thing, the next words out of Jesus' mouth were like, All right, I'm about to go get crucified. And Peter's like, Uh-uh, no way. And Jesus is like, yeah, yes, get behind me, Satan. you got your mind on the things of man, not the things of God. And it's sort of the same thing. Jesus says, all right, here's what's about to happen. Peter says, uh-uh, no way. And Jesus said, yes, in fact, you're going to do it. You're going to, this is how it's going to go down, and you're going to do it three times before the rooster crows. You know, think about that. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him, and that's, that's hurtful. From a human standpoint, isn't it? That's hurtful. And never abandoned Peter anyway, did he? Jesus, being the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. He knew he was going to die on that cross, and he knew he was going to die on that cross for us and all our sin, and all the sins we're ever going to commit. He died for us anyway, and he forgave us anyway. Talk about love. Greater have... Uh, no uh, greater love hath no man than this one who would lay down his life for his friends and while we were yet sinners Christ loved us we don't deserve any of the grace or love we get from God but isn't it so great that we have it alright now moving on Peter was present outside at Jesus' trial in the courtyard and a couple of servant girls said hey aren't you the guy that, that's with him and he's like nah first Peter was like nope not me and the second time he swore an oath when he, you know, like, so he went from just saying, no, not me. Then he was like, no, I, I, I swear it's not me, swearing an oath. And then finally he started cussing, cursing, like, uh-uh, no way, it's not us, not me. And just like, he, it really escalates into the, the intensity of his denials. So he just got out of there. And then he wept bitterly. Why did he weep bitterly? Because he was remorseful for denying Jesus. 
he said he wasn't going to do it, but when the pressure was on, he he crumbled and he caved anyway, and he just doubled down on the lie. We have a moral responsibility as Christians. And it's sort of an easy moral responsibility to carry out. Where I live, at least. I'm pretty sure, because most everybody who works with me, who works for, above me, they're, they're church people. The la- like I mentioned on the last podcast, the last time uh, that I was at work was our Christmas party. And before we ate, they said, Hey, Seth, come do the prayer. So... I work at a place where I'm the guy who's asked to pray. And if I'm not there, there's a couple other guys there they'll ask to do it. So I work for a praying place, and they know we're praying to Jesus when I get up there. And then, like even when I'm doing my coaching and my basketball and soccer games in the city league or the, the uh, soccer club league, our soccer club is not city-affiliated, it's independent, I'm just going to get down and pray. And I know not everybody on my team is a Christian. I'm going to pray. I'm the Bible Belt. Y'all are going to, you're about to listen to me pray. Dear Lord, please help us play our best. <laughs> um, that's the world I live in. There's not really any pressure in my world to deny Jesus. But in some places, m- maybe in some states or some countries or some situations, there are. I know there have been in history. But we have a moral responsibility when people say, Are you a Christian? to say, Yes, and you should be too. What was what was Peter's moral responsibility here? Yeah, I was with him because we're preaching the coming kingdom of the God uh, of God, and we're preaching the good news. And He is the Messiah. Believe in Him. Repent, or you'll likewise perish. Mark one fifteen. Of course, Peter couldn't cite Mark one fifteen. They didn't write it yet. May you repent, or you will likewise perish. That's not what he did. Uh huh. And he got progressively more intense in his lies and denials. So what happened to Peter? Well, read Acts. Read First and Second Peter. Uh, read the early church fathers in church history. Don't listen to the Catholics. They say that he was the first pope. Read the end of John. Peter was genuinely remorseful for what he did and he lived the rest of his life spreading the good news of Jesus Christ and the resurrection and helping to build the church. A pillar of the church, if you will. You don't have to be, now I'm making a lesson of it that's not there, you don't have to be defined by your failures of God. You're going to fail Him. You just are. Live in your forgiveness and go to try to do better next time. And not only does Peter wept bitterly because he felt bad, We're going to, Lord willing, on Friday talk about somebody else who felt bad about what he did, and that was Judas. And Judas doesn't quite quite have quite the legacy uh, that Peter did or does. Uh, We're going to see sort of a difference between a godly, believing, repentant sorrow and uh, Judas's unholy, guilty conscience. But we'll get to verse 27, Lord willing, on Friday. With that, we'll end the Bible chapter review. Here comes a question all the way from Texas. It's Erin from Texas. Haven't heard from her in a while, but she heard my pleas 
my cries for a question and sent one in more than one actually I got more than one from her in the inbox but here's her question for today how are believers to respond to imprecatory prayer and imprecatory psalms and she gives the example of Psalm 69 and 70 but there's other imprecatory psalms and she mentions the New Test in the New Testament Jesus says love your enemies pray for them so how are we supposed to rep- respond to these psalms these imprecatory psalms so some of you may be unfamiliar cuz they don't these don't get preached on a whole lot you I don't think I ever heard of imprecatory psalms till I went to get a master's degree in divinity and specialize in apologetics because the internet atheists, internet infidels go, well, what, what your Bible says dashing people's head, d- dash babies' heads against the rocks. How do you answer that? So for those of you who have never heard of an imprecatory psalm uh, or an imprecatory prayer, an imprecatory prayer is just praying for something bad to happen to someone. It's a curse. It's cursing them and asking God to do something bad to them. Like, dear Lord, may Auburn get on probation and may all their quarterbacks blow their ACL. That would be an imprecatory song. I'm cursing them. And by the way, cursing people in the ancient Near East, uh, and I don't know about other cultures, uh, was normal. You curse people by your God. Like, I'm not going to do anything to you, but God curse you, or the gods curse you. So an imprecatory prayer would just be a prayer against someone. And why would you be praying an imprecatory prayer against someone? Generally because they're an enemy, they're persecuting you, they're hurting you, they're hurting people you love, they're hurting others. It could be a wicked king, it could be a warlord, I mean, on and on. And there are imprecatory psalms in Scripture which means since it's scripture, it's Holy Spirit-inspired imprecatory prayer. Aaron gives the example of Psalm 69 and 70. Now, I believe the context in these psalms, if you want to go pause, pause the show and read them, so pause, unpause, and now you've read Psalm 69 and, and Psalm 70. I think David here is reflecting on his time on the run. So David spent a lot of his life on the run. It it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows from David. So he he was in good with Saul and Jonathan. He's always good with Jonathan. That was his best friend. uh, After he killed Goliath. But God rejected Saul and David was anointed as king. But it was not a smooth transition. It was Saul trying to kill David. So David had to flee and David was David himself was sort of a wandering warlord for a while who was even having to live amongst the Philistines because Saul sought his life and he was on the run a fugitive from Israel even though he was the rightful king and David if you you remember wouldn't even kill Saul because he said I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed so there's that time in his life when he was on the run he was also also on the run during the time of the civil war that they had in Israel between David and his son Absalom because Absalom did not like how David handled a moral failure of uh, one of his brothers and Absalom tried to take over Israel 
and David had to go on the run from Absalom, his own son. So David knows what it's like to be hunted and be in trouble and be surrounded by his enemies. Think like Harrison Ford and the Fugitive. And Tommy Lee Jones is standing there and Harrison Ford says, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones says, I don't care. And then Harrison, Harrison Ford has to jump off the waterfall. Uh, that's, that's how David lived on the run. Of course, he had more support than the Harrison Ford character. And some of it was his fault. Uh, but <coughs> these psalms reflect that desperation. And what David is doing is saying, Lord, save me from my enemies and also smite my enemies. Let these bad things happen to my enemies. And again, this is Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture. It can't be wrong. And, it, and according to Paul, all Scripture is useful for training and teaching and reproof. So there, this must have some value to us as Christians. But doesn't it seem to contradict what Jesus said about loving your enemies and even praying for your enemies? So what's the deal here? How are we Christians supposed to respond to the imprecatory psalms. Well, I think if you look in the context of what Jesus is saying, he's saying you got to be different than the Gentiles. Even the Gentiles love those who love them or are nice to those who are nice to them. Of course, anybody's going to lend to somebody who's going to pay back, but lend without expecting uh, payback. In other, in other words, hurt, help people who can't help you. And be good to people. Be a good neighbor. Jesus talks about who you know who is my neighbor, being a good neighbor. To everyone, not just to people who favor you. So he says, he says, love your enemies. And by the way, he's not talking about feeling good about them. He's talking about living out love for them. It's not, it's not about how you feel. Because you're not going to like the people who are mean to you who are your enemies. Okay? But how you treat them can be neighborly and righteous. And pray for them. You know, dear Lord, please resolve this conflict I have with this person. You know, whatever's going on between us, Lord, help me to be a good witness to them. To point, help my life, Lord, point them towards Christ. Because we have to presume our enemies are lost people. The Gentiles, if you will. And you remember the, the context where Jesus is living. There's the Jews and they're surrounded by the Gentiles and the Romans are living over them and they see themselves as separate. And Jesus is saying, listen, you see these people as your enemies, you got to love them too. Don't just love the Jews, love the Gentiles. Even pagans are good to the people who are good to them. So pray for them. I almost think of Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city that you're in. This is living beside someone as neighbors. I'm going to I'm going to reiterate that this is living beside someone as neighbors. In the case of an imprecatory psalm, it, it's when you have a ruling authority, even a group, over you. Because if you go to the other imprecatory psalms, the famous one about dashing the the infants against the rocks, whose infants? The pagan Philistine type people in the in the promised land. 
the enemies of God's people in corporate, wicked societies. So the, the, the enemy who's trying to kill you or do bad to your society as a whole, that's the one that you're going to use imprecatory prayers against if you feel so led. The person who's just your neighbor, literally your neighbor. Like, I got beef with my neighbor right now because he's always trying to get my, me in trouble for my dogs because he doesn't like that they bark. All right? I don't need to sit there and hate on that guy and wish for bad things to happen to that guy. I still need to look out for him. If I see somebody breaking into his house, I'm supposed to call the police or call him, not say, well, ha-ha. Yeah, you know what? They're breaking into your house, and I'm going to take my dogs inside so they don't bark at you. Bark at the robber, you know? If he needs to borrow my ladder, lend him my ladder, you know? Like he's, he's not out, like, attacking me. My life is not threatened by him. You see what I'm saying? Or I don't... I am blessed right now that I currently don't have any co-workers that I dislike. One of the worst things that just sticks with you in your life, because a third of your life is at work, right? You're, you're, you're asleep for eight hours, generally speaking. You're at home with your family for eight hours doing what you want to do with them. And then for eight hours, you're at work. And if there's somebody at work who's making your life miserable, that just sticks with you. Because you're dealing with them every day. And your livelihood in some way depends on that person and your relationship with him or her. And they just stick at you like a thorn. I used to have a girl who worked for me. I inherited her and I just like, oh, you will, can I please fire this person? Y'all will not let me fire her. And I had a friend, I mean, one of the guys I used to work with, his name was Thomas. He was an installer. And we were in a meeting one day about how to fire people and I, one of my questions was who can I unilaterally fire he was like oh my gosh this guy wants to unilaterally fire people I listen I don't believe in all this red tape and all this HR stuff you people who've who've clawed your way up through management it's so hard you gotta wrap people up you gotta put them on a pip just like no leave you're fired but everybody gets sued now like, HR, you're just in my way. I know who to fire. <laughs> but, you know, when you have to, or if it's somebody over you, it's even worse. Or it could be your equal. So I've had people at work before who are just, I just couldn't stand being around them. I had a guy at work once accusing me of being racist. I don't remember. Oh, he accused me of being racist because... He was a supervisor or a senior on an audit that I was a staff person and he was the senior. And he gave me unclear directions. And the reason that the directions were unclear is because he was either from Kenya or Nigeria. And over there, they speak like British people, the Queen's English, if you will. They speak Englishman's English because those were the English colonies longer than America was. And in the United States, we have a different vernacular, like... I call trash trash, they call rubbish or trash rubbish. When I say pissed, it means mad. When they say pissed, it means it means drunk. When when I when they they when I call a gay person the F word, F A G, 
they, they mean a cigarette. And British people call cigarettes fags. So, you know, different vernacular. And I, there was something on there, and he didn't understand what I meant. I was like, yes, that's exactly what I said. And I said, see, it's because you speak... You're from Kenya, and you speak a different type of English than I do. That's the difference. And it doesn't mean anything to do with race. And somebody said, like, he's being racist. You need to go to HR and tell on him. And I did not particularly like this man because we used to sit in the audit room. And he's saying, when doves cry out loud. So me and him and another, his name was, what was his name? Edward? Me and him and uh, Eleanor, another auditor named Eleanor, were in the room. It was real late. You know, we're working 60 hours a week. We're in this client conference room. It's like 7 or 8 o'clock. And all of a sudden, this guy's bebopping around on his headphones, and he starts singing when doves cry out loud. Maybe I'm just in an, in an African accent. Maybe I'm just like my father, too bold. I'm like... What is wrong with you? So anyway, I didn't get along with this person. He accused me of racism. So it was stressful. We made up, long story short. So how am I going to treat those neighbors? I'm going to love them. All right. What am I going to do when somebody's trying to kill me or destroy my society? Precatory prayer. Save me, Lord. Like if I was in Sudan or Nigeria where Christians get attacked. Save me, Lord. These people are burning down churches and killing Christians. Lord, save us from them. Wreck them. And yeah, you can pray for them to get saved. And So that's where I think, that's how I think you should handle that, Aaron. You want to understand why David or the psalmist is writing these imprecatory prayers so you understand the situation and also understand the context where Jesus is talking about. This answer is very similar to the answer I gave yesterday about when do we take things literally and when do we make a spirit, when do we spiritualize it. Well, when genre and context demand. Now, I'll, before I move on, I don't know if I have time to finish, uh, before I move on, I want to give you a personal example of an imprecatory prayer. When I was at First Baptist Church of Woodstock, I was all torn up as a Georgia Baptist and member of First Baptist Church of Woodstock that First Baptist brought in to preach Aragon Caner because Aragon Caner is an enemy of God. He was a phony. He was a fake jihadist. He was taking advantage of Christians to make money off of them. He not only lied to Christians, he lied to the U.S. Marines when he went in to tell them what to do uh, when they went to Iraq and how to handle Arabs and Muslims like he'd know. He's from Ohio. And he was suing two Christian men who made his lies public. He was a wicked and vicious man using the church as his piggy bank. And not only the church as a whole and my denomination as a whole, but my church. I was a member of First Baptist Woodstock. I didn't know what a scumbag Johnny Hunt was at the time. I know now. Guys, you remember that Stevie Flockhart episode I did? Do you know Johnny Hunt recommended Stevie Flockhart to a church in Florida even though Johnny Hunt knew that Stevie Flockhart had been in legal trouble? Oh, it's his friend's son. Johnny Hunt's just a scumbag who looks after his friends. I didn't know that. 
I didn't know if the pastor of the church was in on it too. So here I am at my church and this wicked guy who's stepping all over Christians and stepping all over the church is there to fill for the pulpit. That's God's pulpit. Now, Ergen Cantor had never done anything to me. I didn't know him from Adam. I just knew he was a wicked, crooked guy who was a black eye on the church. So I remember that church service. I prayed during that church service, and I prayed in precatory psalms for bad things to happen against Ergen Cantor. Ergen Cantor was not some lost person who never heard the gospel. He was an evangelist. He was the type of person who goes to youth camps, preaches the gospel, and says 50 people get saved. One of these types of people. So I'll never forget that Sunday praying imprecatory prayers from the Bible against Aragon Canner. And you know, by Tuesday, his son was dead. His son, Braxton, shot himself. I mean, could just be timing. But I've never felt unjustified in praying those uh, uh, imprecatory prayers against that wicked man. Because what am I going to do about it? Write a blog? (laughs) I mean, I did, but you know what I mean? If if you're someone from 901 Church, pray imprecatory prayers against the flock hearts. They're deceiving people. There are times when it's appropriate. And you have to judge those times. And really, Aaron, it's, it's... it comes down to a heart thing. If you want revenge on somebody who did something bad to you, that's not the time for imprecatory prayer. Love your neighbor. And, and leave room for the vengeance of God, by the way. Love your neighbor. Don't sit there and resent them and try and wreck them. All right, let's move on to Paul Pressler, a hill upon which to compromise. Short history lesson. In the 60s and 70s, the Southern Baptist Convention was getting as liberal as the United Methodists and PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA. And certain conservative men decided that we needed to, they needed to save the Southern Baptist Convention. And they enacted a plan at the SBC in 1980 to, over 10 years, elect conservative... I mean, it was all a plot to elect conservative pastors as the president of the SBC to put conservatives on the committee on committees and eventually get rid of all the liberal trustees at the mission boards and seminaries and then when they had conservative trustees in there fire all the liberals and that was a plan and they enacted it the architects of that plan it was the the, the people was the, the that plan was the brainchild of a young younger Paige Patterson and judge Paul Pressler now Paige Patterson was a preacher. I don't even. I don't know if he was ever a pastor, but he was a seminary president, evangelist, guy who went to seminary. He's a professional minister. Paul Pressler is a layperson, but he's just some rich dude. And the name of Paul Pressler's biography, or the title of his biography, is a hill upon which to die. And I've read it. A little history, a little Baptist history. And the idea was that in the inerrancy of Scripture, because that was the big fight, the battle for the Bible, is a hill upon which to die. There's a lot of things we can disagree on as Baptists and have a convention together, but the inerrancy of Scripture is not one of them. And that's a hill upon which to die. 
So Paul Pressler and Paige Patterson decided that was the hill to die on. And they set out, I mean, traveling the country, making phone calls to put their little cabal together to retake the Southern Baptist Convention, and they did for the conservatives. And Pressler's autobiography, A Hill Upon Which to Die, is the story of that. I suggest if you're a Baptist, you read it. It's good history. Paul Pressler came from a wealthy family, type of dude who went to boarding school. Uh, he went to law school. He spent a little bit of time in private practice, but uh, he eventually ran for a state congress seat and won as a very young man. After that, I think I don't remember if he was elected as a judge or as appointed as a judge. He became a judge in Texas. Uh, so that's a sort of a big time influential position. He was nominated to some federal government positions, I think by people like George Bush nominated him from something. He ended up not doing it. But he has very deep political connections and wealth and influence in Texas. And he was a conservative Baptist all uh, the whole way. Uh, he, he won some kind of Ronald Reagan award. So he's a bona fide conservative Baptist layman who had the time and resources, along with Paige Patterson, to retake the Southern Baptist Convention. He wasn't going to compromise. Well, a couple years ago, some accusations against Paul Pressler came out. Some guy in jail was saying, Paul Pressler ruined my life. I'm in jail and I'm on drugs, and it's because Paul Pressler ruined my life because he molested me when I was a teenager. It was a dude. Not that molesting a teenage girl is okay, it's not, but it was a dude, so it's gay stuff. So you, you got to understand, Paul Pressler is, and Paige Patterson are the poster boys for conservative theology and family values, like homosexuality's a sin. Not like these other denominations that want to bless same-sex marriage and put gays in the clergy it's like Paige Patterson and Paul Pressler are the guys holding the line on this. And God's order, male and female, not only for marriage and sex, but for the church and how only men can be pastors. Okay. And I remember hearing that story, and that guy said that he was a member of the youth group where Paul Pressler was a youth minister. And I, even, I remember reading Pressler's biography, and he said he was a volunteer at a Presbyterian church youth group. And I remember thinking, like, why? Why would you and your wife be youth leaders at a Presbyterian church when you're, like, the Baptists of Baptists? Like, I, I didn't get that. But that always kind of stuck out as weird to me. And then I started thinking about, you know, how many kids does Pressler have? He's got, like, one son. Why doesn't he have more kids? And, you know, they're like, why wouldn't, is he not that interested in his wife? Um, but I remember when that guy made the accusations and I'm like, all right, here's some druggie who a rich guy invested in him once and now he's trying to bilk the rich guy with his accusations. I don't believe this. But you know what? After that accusation came out, here came more. So you got the newspapers digging and you got people coming out and say, yeah, Paul Pressler wanted me to get naked with him in the, the hot tub. And everybody knows if you're going to Paul Pressler's house, he wanted to get naked in the hot tub with you. Again, dudes. And Paul Pressler 
when he, he wanted to share hotel rooms with people, and he was like, oh, it's like a locker room, and we're going to walk around naked. Like, Paul Pressler was always trying to be around naked dudes. And now it's not just one drug addict, one convict. It's people in ministry. It's other people from youth groups. And now you start hearing of letters from emails from churches where he was serving saying, Paul, you got um, you got to stop trying to get naked with, with boys. So now you think... Paul Pressler likes to get naked with dudes and fool around with them. And he got so there's this lawsuit against him. Now let me tell you this. And I don't have a I don't have a bunch of money. Nobody's nobody's really I mean, I could really do something bad to somebody and fine, sue me. I got nothing. I got six kids. Good luck. And here's 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 my 2000. You want my 2013 Kia Soul with 168,000 miles on it? It's worth $1,600. That's my daily driver, all right. But Paul Pressler has money, and I don't. So easy for me to say. Nobody's suing me to try to get all my money. If somebody sued me and said I'm suing you for sex molesting me, not only sex molesting me, but gay sex molesting me. You better believe I'm not settling that case. I'm like, no, I didn't do it. And we're going to clear my name. We are going to clear it. I did not do it. And I bet a lot of you feel the same way. And then you look at Paul Pressler. The title of the man's book was A Hill Upon Which to Die. In other words, we will not compromise with the liberals. This is a hill on which to die. Listen, there were people who wanted to compromise with the liberals. <coughs> who wanted to say, alright, give the liberals Southern Seminary, we'll keep Southwestern. We'll have a compromise. This is in the history. You can read it. And then the conservatives were like, no, we're not doing that. So here you have Paul Pressler who uncompromisingly spent a lot of his life in free time. He's some rich dude. He could have done whatever he wanted. Going around and beating the bushes to get conservative pastors to come to the convention for 10 years so they could get rid of liberals. And then all the while, supposedly, he likes to fool around with dudes. You know what would have told me that he didn't do it? If he's, and this guy's like 90. If he said, fine, sue me, we're going to take it to court, you prove it. And this, he's a lawyer. He knows a civil trial is not a criminal trial and re, uh, requires a preponderance of evidence. Go ahead, buddy, you prove it. Because I didn't do it. That he settled tells me that he did it. Now, a lot of lawyering... And getting sued and suing people is a numbers game. Somebody's party A sues party B for a million dollars. Party B says, "I think if we adjudicate this case, we'll win. We won't have to pay the million dollars, but it'll cost us two hundred thousand dollars in lawyers' fees and court costs to adjudicate the case." So if we fight it, we're out $200,000. So you know what we'll do? We will offer them $200,000 or below. Like first we'll offer 50, then 100, then 150, but no more than 200 to settle the case. And then you know the case is done, uh, and you know we don't really take a loss because the law. Or I said the loss. Once somebody sues you, you you have a loss. It's sunk. You got a loss because you got to defend yourself. 
unless unless you can countersue them for a frivolous lawsuit. By the way, that happened to Ergen Kaner when he sued people. He lost, and the judge made him, made Kaner pay for the other dude's lawyers like thirty thousand dollars. Judge Moon was that judge's name. But you do that, that kind of pragmatic stuff. So if you're if you you know there might be some millionaire out there who's a gazillionaire and has got something to lose, and somebody says, "Well, you sex molested me." I'm like, all right, fine. I'll give you $100,000 if you sign this NDA and settle. And that's what Paul Pressler did. He settled. So when you settle, a lot of times these settlements are private. You can't reveal the settlement or you lose your money. Like that woman who uh, settled with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, she can never say what her settlement is or she loses her money. And it's sort of this thing's like, if you settle for somebody with somebody for $50,000, they might think, ah, you know what? I don't think he did it. He was just trying to make the case go away and end the stress. Because nothing's more stressful than getting sued. Or have, even, even if you're not sued, when you start dealing with lawyers, it's stressful. But then if you see the settlement and it's a million dollars, it's like if that guy gave him a million dollars, he did it. So they keep these settlement terms confidential. So when I think of Paul Pressler and his confidential settlement and his age and his reputation and you know always say where there's smoke there's fire guys it's pretty clear that the chief layperson architect of the conservative resurgence of the southern baptist convention was going around playing grab butt with other dudes not only other dudes who are his age but Young men who he's supposed to be mentoring in youth group type situations. He's a he's a perv. And I think the homosexuals and liberals will look at that and say, Oh, you know, what a hypocrite, blah blah blah. Because he was out there saying he doesn't want to live our life like we do, but you know, he's doing some of the same things. And here's the thing. When you have a guy that prominent doing stuff like this, I know it's before the internet. Guys, you don't think Paige Patterson knew. (coughs) He had to. He had to have known. And when you think about how Paige Patterson and Jerry Vines have handled people like Daryl Gilliard, and how people like Johnny Hunt have handled Steve Lockhart and Ergen Kanner, and how Johnny Hunt's buddies have handled Johnny Hunt, you see, like, these guys know each other, they know what they do, and these cabals, whether they're good on their surface or not, are just, like, inherently unholy. Just that kind of wickedness. And then you think of somebody like Paul Pressler, and it's like, clearly in your life, you don't have a problem with snapping towels in the locker room, Paul. Um, Why did you fight so hard to have the conservative resurgence? And you start thinking, it's a way of life and not what people believe. It's a sort of nominal Christianity. I think there's a lot of people, I don't want to speak for him, but I think a, a, a... a good present example is uh, oh, what's Rod's last name? I'm blanking on Rod's last name because I'm 40. I'm friends with him on Facebook. He was he was a rich he is a rich layperson and uh, he's involved with the Southern Baptist Convention. And when I talk to when I talk to him and uh, when I see him fight for conservatism, and it's like good for him. We're on the same side, but I'm like 
I feel like you don't want to lose the influence of a conservative denomination on the United States. And I think that's the case with Pressler. Because here's a guy, he's got a wife, he's got a family, he's living the type of life that would be considered the biblical model. And I think he knows in his mind the United States and Texas is a better place if Baylor and the Southern Baptist Convention don't fall to liberalism. You know, but I'm still going to try and get naked with little boys because that's what I like to do. You have somebody like that who's like a staunch conservative GOP politician, sort of like these people. It was the Moms for Liberty, the school woman on a school board, and they're conservative activists, and you find out her and her husband are having threesomes and I think filming it. And it's like, you like to participate in the sins and you're going to keep doing it, but you know if we normalize them, society's going to go to hell in a handbasket. And I think that's that kind of, the kind of pragmatism that's taken hold of a lot of evangelicalism when you have these seeker-sensitive churches. Or would you rather not have them in church? Paul Pressler. A hill upon which to settle. There was no one more important or respectable to the Southern Baptist conservative resurgence than Paul Pressler. Remember that. The next time somebody tells you that there's a problem with some conservative hero you have. Because it might just be true. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Lord willing, I'll be back with you again tomorrow. As always, God bless. And remember, Christianity is not about getting saved. It's about being saved. Thanks for listening to The Christian Commute. Please send your questions about Christian apologetics and theology to SethDunn88 at gmail.com. If you are not a Christian, please remember that you can be reconciled to God through the shed blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins now and accept Jesus as Lord. God bless.